At Emory University's Goizueta Business School, we believe in going beyond what is to build what should be. Because when you change your perspective, you can change business for the better. In an ever-changing marketplace, we seek to make our mark, to achieve more, build more, do more, create more. That's the Goizueta Effect. I'm your host, Gretchen Wright. Today we'll be discussing how conflicts of interest in business can affect entire economies with Associate Professor Gonzalo Maturana. Professor Maturana is an expert in the areas of corporate finance, household finance, real estate finance, and conflicts of interest. Welcome. Hi Gretchen, thanks for, for having me. Absolutely. Um, so your area of focus in a nutshell is business, business ethics. And your position is that business ethics matter, not just because it's bad to break the rules, but why are these ethics so important? Okay, yes. So uh, first, let me start by mentioning that most of my work on this topic is joint work with my co-authors, John Griffin and Samuel Kruger from the University of Texas at Austin. Now back to the question of why business ethics and Preventing firms from yielding to conflicts of interest is important. For me, the answer to this question goes back to how we have decided to organize society. So we have organized society around an economic system that places competition as the fundamental pillar for economic growth. So ideally, this system rewards merit. right? And the idea here is that if one works hard, there's a reward. This fosters, for example, innovation and entrepreneurship. So, for example, the entrepreneur hires workers, the invention translates into gains through lower prices or by uh, or, or covers a necessity, etc. Right? So now back to merit. Our economic system is supposed to uh, be the opposite to an economic system in which birth or social class are the route to economic success. Now, central to this idea of merit is the idea of fairness. The strength of our economic system is often predicated around this idea that it is fair, although as, as the recent protests show that there's a large fraction of society actually that disagrees with this idea that the system is fair, which as I will discuss uh, later is a, is a big problem actually. But now independently, we have a set of rules and policies to try to guarantee or at least try to move closer to this idea of fair, fairness. And if firms or individuals violate these rules seeking their own benefit, then the whole system falls apart. The system becomes corrupt and a small group of people ultimately benefit at the expense of the majority. So now the question is, what happens if the public perceives that the system is not fair? And, and there's an argument that at least I heard it uh, first from Professor Luigi Singales from the University of Chicago, which I thought was pretty interesting. And this argument is that without public support, or worse, with public resentment, it's very difficult for the economic and financial system to operate. Because many of the impediments to function properly will come from the political side, because politicians will try to win votes. Then only those market participants that enjoy large rents can lobby. Thus, in the presence of this public resentment, we may end up with a system that actually goes against competition and favors this collapse or this concept of clubbishness. So to summarize the question, I think we can easily lose the benefits of capitalism when rules are violated. You've looked a lot into um, the issue around the, um, the housing crisis um, from earlier in the century. 
Um, and, and that crisis and the crisis that was driven by the popularity of mortgage-backed securities um, is an example of, of what can happen when businesses are not behaving ethically and, and not sort of behaving fairly. Can you talk about how conflict of interest played into this situation? Yes, so uh, residential mortgage-backed securities played an important role in the financial crisis because they helped facilitating additional mortgage credit that otherwise would have not been available. This additional credit fueled demand uh, for houses, right, and contributed to the housing bubble. So let me start by clarifying a few things. The residential mortgage-backed securities that we're referring to are the so-called private label or non-agency uh, residential mortgage-backed securities. These are the securities that were underwritten by investment banks not the RMBS uh, that were guaranteed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So just for context, the, the non-agency securitization market grew very rapidly uh, from around 85 billion in, in year 2000 to 1.1 trillion uh, a, a year in 2005 and 2006. Uh, now mortgage securitization consists of putting groups of mortgages together and creating securities out of them, which are then sold to investors. So this allows originating banks to transfer credit risk. And by credit risk, I mean the fact that uh, borrowers can default on their mortgages. It also makes assets that are illiquid, those are the mortgages, liquid all, all of a sudden. Non-agency uh, residential mortgage-backed securities are complex securities. There were several entities involved in the creation of these securities most of which for, uh, face substantial conflicts of interest. So because of this, the market had a number of checks to ensure asset quality. Now, the problem was that these checks did not work as intended. And, and I can give you a, a few examples of, of them. To start, homeowners may want to misreport features of their loan applications to obtain better loan conditions, like, like larger loans or lower interest rates. However, the loan officer typically collects and verifies key pieces of information, such as income, credit history, other debt obligations that the borrower might have. Okay, so with that, they try to map how risky the homeowner or, or the potential borrower is. Now, on the other hand, the loan officer is often compensated on loan volume. So there's an incentive to lower the standards. But then originating banks can fire loan officers that have large numbers of inaccurate loan files. And, and banks also use independent appraisals to verify the, the value of the homes. Further, because underwriters purchase loans from uh, originators that have more information about the loans that they issue, right? Origination, originators may have an incentive to inaccurately report this information uh, to the, the loan information to underwriters. Now, to monitor that conflict, residential mortgage-backed security underwriters hired loan monitoring companies that examine uh, securitized loans, loan pools. Again, on the other hand, underwriters make large profits if the pools are structured aggressively. But they also have a reputation to protect, right? So they have reputation incentives to correctly represent deals. Now, the problem here is that misrepresentations may be very difficult to catch due to the complexity of the security, right? Uh, residential mortgage-backed securities were extremely complex in terms of the structure of the payments and how you measure risk. Right? So if you also combine the fact that the economy was booming, right? so everything was doing, doing well, it's very difficult to catch any misrepresentation uh, in that setting. 
Now you also had credit rating agencies like Standard and Poor's and Moody's, right? That were supposed to certify the quality of the securities, but again, they were paid by the underwriters with whom they have repeated business. Uh, each member of the securitization chain depended largely on the next level for its future business. So most problems flow directly or indirectly uh, up to the incentives of the underwriting bank, actually. Because, for example, if the underwriter pays an appropriate lower price to the originator on a misreported loan, then it would eliminate the incentive for the originator and the parties that answer to that originator uh, to misreport. However, if the underwriter also profits from the misreported loans uh, because they're easier to, sow, to sell and, 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 and investors don't detect the fact that they should pay a lower price for them, uh, and they purchase the loans uh, at less than the required misreporting discount, then the originator is also incentivized to misreport, you see? The end result of all these conflicts of interest and, and different layers uh, of in the securitization process was uh, residential mortgage-backed securities that were uh, of significantly lower quality than state. Uh, so the problem, like I mentioned before, is that catching this during an economic boom is very difficult, in part because no one is putting attention so no one's paying attention during during booms when everything's going well and everyone is making money, right? So you end up discovering all of this during the economic downturn, which in turn makes the down the downturn worse. And and can you talk about sort of what the the ripple effect was? Um, I mean, everybody's heard about people losing their homes um, because they ultimately could not afford. The, the mortgages that they'd been encouraged to take out uh, because they'd been misrepresented. Uh, but can you talk about sort of the, the larger impact of this whole mortgage-backed securities process? Yes, absolutely. So like you mentioned, often the, the focus is on the borrower that defaults, right, that loses the home, or also the, the investor of the mortgage-backed security, right? When, when you have all these defaults, that affects the performance of the of the RMBS. I have research that shows that there was a ripple effect that operated uh, through house prices that is potentially even more important. Uh, like I discussed before, securitization incentivized mortgage lenders to expand uh, credit. So much of this credit expansion happened in the subprime market, which is the market of borrowers with weaker credit profiles, that is uh, lower uh, credit scores. So the expansion of credit uh, fueled demand for housing, which in turn pushed uh, house prices up. Okay, so many of the, these subprime borrowers started defaulting when house prices began to fall. Now the issue uh, with these defaults is that they not only affect negatively these borrowers and also the, the residential mortgage-backed security investors, but everyone else around them. Because it has been shown that for closed houses, tend to trade at a lower value. So if there's a high concentration of mortgage defaults with subsequent foreclosures in an area, then the value of all houses in the neighborhood can be negatively affected because home valuations are based on the prices of similar homes that were that transacted recently uh, and, and close by. So as we can see, securitization, lax credit, uh, bad origination practices, not only affected uh, negatively those borrowers that took the mortgages and the uh, investors of the securities, but complete uh, neighborhoods. So my research shows that uh, house price distortions were particularly prevalent in areas where subprime lenders with bad practices uh, concentrated uh, their, their origination activities. 
So when the hybridization market collapsed and disappeared by uh, mid-2007, these lenders went quickly out of business. And I know you, you, you talked a little bit about sort of almost collusion between, um, between lenders and, and appraisers. There was, you know, there were some unethical practices and you've, you've actually looked at um, whether or not the, the bank employees engaged in those practices um, suffered at all suffered suffered consequences with regard to employment. Can you talk a little bit about what you found on on that front um, with regard to ramifications for for unethical behavior? Yes. So we find that employees involved in the creation of these residential mortgage-backed securities that later were found to be misrepresented did not face significant career penalties. In, in other words. They did just like any other finance professional of similar seniority in terms of uh, career outcomes. And by career outcomes, I mean outcomes such as the probability of remaining employed at the same bank, the probability of moving to another large bank, the probability of being promoted uh, both within the original bank or this new bank where where the employee uh, went to work after the crisis. Um, So... This finding is, is concerning because the employees that we analyzed uh, worked at banks that settled with the Department of Justice and admitted wrongdoing during the structuring of these residential mortgage-backed securities. And the system of settlements is often predicated on the idea that uh, financial penalties are more cost-effective than imprison- imprisonment in addressing wrongdoing, <laughs> and that uh, penalties on organizations are more effective than penalties on individuals. Right, so that's the logic for which uh, these settlements exist. The idea is that after an organization is penalized with a sufficiently large fine, then the employees responsible for the penalties will be disciplined both by their employers. For example, the employee uh, will be fired, and but they're also uh-huh. going to be disciplined by the labor market. So, for example, you get tainted, right, and and you will struggle to find another job, right, because it's it's apparent that you were fired. Uh, for doing uh, some wrong for some wrongdoing, so our findings uh, actually show that the system of settlements may not be as good as many think. Also, these results and the lack of individual prosecutions send a message to current and future finance professionals in that there's little, if any, price to partic- uh, to pay for participating in abusive uh, practices. This lack of repercussion can reinforce cultural norms that allow or encourage employees to ignore the warning signs of fraud and abuse. And this can have a very negative effect also on the functioning of, of our, econo- uh, our economy for the reasons I, I mentioned uh, earlier. So, you know, there are, there, well, there are supposed to be rules and regulations that, um, as you mentioned, that take care of, of that flaw in the system. But do you have um, thoughts about what needs to be done to ensure that businesses ensure that their employees are behaving ethically and that the businesses behave ethically and that if they don't and you know and are caught and are punished in whatever way that they don't just return to business as usual once the punishment has run its course ultimately I think that a uh, good business ethics needs to be part of the culture of firms the guidelines need to come from the upper management and the upper management needs to uh, lead by example. Also for incentivizing good behavior, you need to have strong enough deterrence. So I think increasing accountability 
and rethinking statute of limitations, for example, are, are a possible way to generate incentives. So, for example, when we, when we were trying to figure out why in this uh, previous research I described we didn't find differences in the career outcomes of these uh, bankers that structured mortgage-backed securities, right? But like why there was no, uh, there was lack of ramifications and, and, and in terms of penalties for them, we look at different possi possible reasons for the findings. So first we look at whether employment outcomes vary with culpability. Uh, that, that's a possibility, but we didn't find any meaningful differences when comparing these mortgage-backed security bankers that were directly linked to the settlements because they signed the documents of those securities that were explicitly named in the settlement, right? When we compare them with other uh, RMBS bankers, we don't find any differences in their career outcomes. We also didn't find mm -hmm. a meaningful differences uh, based on employee seniority. The second possibility that we looked at was that banks may have wanted to discipline their employees, but ultimately decided to retain them so that they're not used against them in future litigation. But we found su substantial cross-hiring by large banks and substantial promotions of these bankers, which are inconsistent with this uh, possibility. A third possibility is that banks disciplined their employees after it became public that uh, mortgage-backed security fraud was widespread. But even as late as 2016, there's no evidence of banks uh, disciplining employees. So finally, we also look at the possibility that the penalties that is defined, right, uh, were not large enough. But we don't find any differential discipline effect across banks based on the amount of the settlements. So ultimately, we conclude and we're left with the explanation that is most likely, right, the most likely explanation for findings that upper management did not view their actions as deviating from the directives of the firm, right? Or that upper management is concentrated uh, or concerned, better said, on the consequences of implicitly acknowledging widespread wrongdoing and lack of oversight. So for example, if I'm a managing direct director of, an air, of, a, of a division, it might reflect bad on me to, us, to recognize that there was widespread wrongdoing in my division by firing everyone, right? And one example of this okay. that we saw recently is the Wells Fargo fake account scandal of 2016, right? In, we, in where upper management was disciplined ultimately, so they were fired, right, or forced to leave their, their jobs after significant congressional and press scrutiny. Okay, so maybe they wanted to avoid some uh, situation of, of, of that sort. But going back to the, the original question, I think, uh, like I mentioned, uh, good business ethics needs to be a part of the culture of firms, right? Of course, you need to have uh, regulation and, and incentives also to, to curve behavior. Right? I also think that business schools can contribute to uh, business ethical behavior. Uh, I think that the business faculty should actually discuss these issues openly in the classroom and increase the awareness of the importance of these issues beyond just the fact that misbehaving is, is wrong, right? And finally, also as a researcher, I believe that academics can play a role in exposing and challenging bad businesses uh, practices. You you've given two examples of sort of, of conflict of interest. Um, you know the the mortgage-backed securities, and then also the the situation with Wells Fargo uh, in twenty sixteen. Are there other examples um, or other ways that conflict of interest has driven? business decisions um, that have turned out to be problematic? 
Conflicts of interest are driving business decisions uh, all the time, right? Um, each time you have someone, for example, a salesperson that is being compensated based on the volume of sales, well, you know that that person is going to do everything that they can, hopefully within the law, right, to sell. Right? So you have to make sure that you have internal checks and, and balances to monitor right, the, the actions of that uh, salesperson right, and make sure that the way in which the salesperson behaves, right, adheres to the standards, right, uh, of the firm, more beyond just the law, but the, the general guidelines of the firm with regards to business ethics. Is there um, any kind of role for leaders of organizations to ensure that conflicts of interest don't happen? Are there are there things that you know CEOs or CFOs and those kinds of people ought to be doing to make sure that that, that recognize that you know the, yes our bottom I, we we want to be earning money but we don't want to be earning money at the expense of business eth- business ethics. Yes, absolutely. So I think first uh, managers need to recognize that for curving the behavior in their organizations, you need to generate the incentives for that, right? Uh, so you need to have a system right, in which you can monitor the actions of your employees and make sure that they comply and adhere to the standards. Like I said before, the good business ethics ultimately needs to be part of the culture of firm, but that takes time, right? And, and uh, the guidelines need to come, like you mentioned, from the upper management, uh, and the upper management needs to lead by example, right? If I know that my boss cares about uh, business ethics, right, and good behavior, right, and that's something that's constantly discussed in my work setting, then I'm going to start internalizing that that's important, right, and that's valued by the firm, right, and that there, ultimately there's going to be a reward for behaving ethically. Like I also mentioned before, for incentivizing good behavior, you need to have strong enough deterrence. In the case of the of, of what we saw in the crisis, I think that there was lack of accountability, right? So I think maybe thinking about rethinking the statute of limitations uh, and increasing accountability more generally are a possible way to generate incentives. But one thing is that there was very few bankers, there were very few bankers that were prosecuted individually, right? So if I know that uh, if I misbehave, there's not going to be a direct punishment, right? If in top of everything you basically see that there's no punishment for people that have misbehaved uh, before, then of course you're generating incentives for people to take the shortcut, right? And and, and misbehave in many in many ways. Uh, so I think this has to be tackled. Uh, organically by the firm. Like I said, I think uh, business schools can also contribute uh, to uh, business ethical behavior by discussing these things openly in the classroom, right? increasing the awareness of the importance of these issues, right? because I think people typically think of business ethics, okay, yeah, of course you have to uh, follow uh, good business practices because it's wrong not to, right? But I think once people understand the consequences that be just be beyond just the, the fact that it's wrong but there's consequences for the economic system of misbehaving people are going to be internalizing uh, these issues and and hopefully they can also start behaving a little bit better and also like i also mentioned before i believe that 
that's where academics can play a role too in, in exposing and challenging uh, bad practices. Thank you very, very much for your time and for joining us. Um, and good luck in your continued research. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation to discuss these, these issues. For more information about the Goizueta Effect podcast, please visit emory.biz slash podcast.